people who follow Jesus are really interesting characters in the Gospels. And we're in this thing called Eyewitness News looking at the Gospel of Mark in the New Testament. There are four writings about Jesus in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And Mark is the most succinct. This is like a paperback edition for Roman soldiers. You get in, get out, read it, get the stuff. And it's, Jesus is always teaching. He's called mostly, most often he is called teacher in the Gospels. That's his title. He's always teaching. Whether I'm always learning, that's a different question. But he is always teaching. And the feeding of the 5,000 may be for the feeding of the 5,000, but certainly it was education. It was training for the disciples. Here are these 12 guys, mostly from the same county up in Galilee. And they're fishermen and they're tax collectors. They're all over the map politically and personally. And he has them sitting people down. And you heard Pastor Terry last week tell this great organizational story and the miracle of five loaves and two, like sardines actually, feeding all these people. Last week it was on the shore. This week it's on the lake. You know, quiz number two is going to be on the lake. Last week it was about faith and food. This week it's about faith versus fear. I'm riding along this week and my telephone rings and I answer it and it's... Uh, this is what I hear. Brother Fof, how you doing? This is your old buddy Charles Daniels. I said, I know Charles. I only know one guy who talks like that. <laughs> I met Charles Daniel on the pier at Hatteras, North Carolina. Anybody know where Cape Hatteras, North Carolina is? I mean, it's out on the East Coast. If you see a map of the United States, when you get to North Carolina, there's a section of it that comes out like this. And on the tip out there is Hatteras Village. North Carolina, in between the mainland and these off islands is a large, what they call a sound, no deeper than 15 feet at any point, that runs for maybe 100 miles and at points it's 30 miles wide. And historically, the fishermen have fished in that sound with long nets. They'll take a mile of net between two boats and run for four or five hours and then bump the nets up, stake them down and take the fish out that are in there. And um, I'm sitting on the pier in 1972. We had taken our young family down to Hatteras for a vacation, but Hurricane Agnes had come through, and this guy comes walking down the pier, and he looks like a fisherman. His khakis are rolled up to here, and his, you know, he's got tan and deep blue eyes, and I said, hi. He said, hi, how you doing? And people from that section were the first settlements of the English. Sir Walter Raleigh and all that in the 1600s, they settled there. And because they were off the beach miles, their language didn't change. And so you have this interesting mix of, it's, it's, it's sort of um, East End London and North Carolina drawl. It's sort of a cross between my, my dear friend who jokes about his language, says he's from Oklahoma, Jeff Lucas. It's a cross between Jeff Lucas and Andy Griffith. It's sort of that kind of, <laughs> that kind of, it's very distinctive. And he said, what are you doing tomorrow? I said, I'm just here with my, he said, you want to go fishing with me? I said, yeah, so 4.30 in the morning, I'm in the Miss Bali, in the boat that he's got, diesel motor going, he's fixing me grits. First time I ever had grits was on his fishing boat 40 years ago, going out into the Pamlico sound. I learned about the wind and the weather and the smell of fish and the mending of nets and scarred feet because they fish barefoot there and they have like prehensile toes that just sort of grip the gunnels, you know, when they get there. <laughs> and it scars all over them from dorsal fins and gills and I, you know, I never understood about Jesus washing Peter's feet until I saw Charles Daniel's feet. <laughs> really, it's fascinating. Anyway, 
These are Jesus kind of people. Jesus, 33 years, most of them were spent around fishermen, farmers, and villagers around the Sea of Galilee. And um, in, this, in this lake or sea, it's called the Lake of Tiberias, it's called Kinneret or Kinnereth, it's called the Sea of Galilee. This is where Jesus spent his time. And this story takes place immediately after the feeding of the 5,000. So if you have your Bibles, turn. Otherwise, it'll be on the screen. Mark, the sixth chapter, the 45th verse. This account is also found in Matthew 14 and in John 6. Slightly different accounts. Same truth, but slightly uh, different language. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida. Now, he's just fed these 5,000 people. More than that, actually. And while he dismissed the crowd, while he dismissed the crowd, after leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. And when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the lake and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. About the fourth watch of the night, that's about three in the morning, he went out to them walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them. I, I just find that phrase very interesting. We'll come back to that. But when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. And they cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them and the wind died down. They were completely amazed. For they had not understood about the loaves. They're still back trying to figure out how do you do that loaf and fish thing. Their hearts were hardened. This... This is such an interesting passage. There are so many funny, for me, funny little quirks in it. And, well, here's how it goes. What does Jesus do in the story? Point number one. What does Jesus do in the story? He does two things. He engages people, and he overwhelms nature. He engages people, and he overwhelms nature. Like he engaged the big crowd. You know, he's still engaging them. He's sending them home and so forth. He engages the disciples, both on shore and on the lake. This is no mystic back in a cave. This is no guy sitting on a mountain and all the people have to come to him. He goes to them. But more than that, he overwhelms nature in this story. Two ways, at least. One is biology. It says that he's up on the mountainside, depending on which version you read. He's up on the mountainside, and he sees them on the lake struggling against the wind out in the middle of the lake. Now, it's three in the morning. It's pitch black. I mean, there might be lightning flashes, but it, I mean, it's just, and I'm thinking, how does he see him? See, I ask these kind of questions. I ask a lot of why. Why did he do that? How did he do that? I ask a lot of that stuff. How does he see him out on the lake? Like he's got infrared eyes or something. Night vision goggles built in. I believe in the God with infrared eyes. I believe in the God that sees in the dark. The second piece is a physics piece. How does he walk on the water? I mean, it's interesting at the Pentagon in Washington, D.C., when people do extremely brave things, powerful things that shouldn't be able to be done, they call them water walkers. That, that's the name for them, water walkers, at the Pentagon of the United States. Studies have been done about if somebody actually could walk on the water. And we, we know there are insects like water spiders that can walk on the water. There's a, there's a lizard in the Amazon basin that stands up straight and can run on the water. You know, just picks him up and lays him down can, for, for a ways, you know. But with men or humans, you can't walk on the water unless 
They say you would have to have feet the size of umbrellas and would have to do 15 foot plants a second to stay up on the water. Well, Jesus wasn't doing that. He didn't have umbrella feet. This is not Jesus with the big feet. This is Jesus, the son of God. He's like a carpenter. And, but you say, how can you believe that stuff? How can you believe he could walk on the water or have infrared eyes? I mean, you're, you look like a sane person most of the time. How, how could you do that? Well, see, my problem is that I've come to the place where I believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. I believe he's the resurrected Christ. And once you believe that he could be raised from the dead and forgive your sin, then like infrared eyes and walking on the water, that's not a big deal. Okay? Just thought I'd throw that in to let you know. Point number two. What does Jesus say in this story? Well, he says three things initially. He says to the disciples, he gives them the direction. He says, get in the boat. Go to the other side. Get in the boat. Go to the other side. Secondly, he says to the crowd, thanks for coming. It's getting dark. You need to go home. He dismisses the crowd. But what does he say to his father? It says he goes up on the mountain to pray alone. I left that one blank. Your guess is as good as mine. You can just fill it in, whatever you think he said. You always have these times under pressure or in intensity where Jesus goes and has a conversation with the father. What would you say to your father? What would you say to a person who could help you the most? What would your conversation sound like? You just put a couple words in there. Point three. What do the disciples hear in the storm? One was what does Jesus do in the story? Secondly, what did he say in the story? And finally, what did the disciples hear in the storm? Let me just say something about elements gone crazy, okay? You have water, wind, fire, earth, okay? Those are like elements that can move around. If you have real strong winds, we call those tornadoes. Not good. That's an element gone crazy. If you have fire that gets out of hand, we know that by experience. It's not good. If you have water that gets out of its banks and floods everything, it's not great. And if the earth moves, if you've never been in an earthquake, you need to thank God. I've been in earthquakes. And you think, it's over, baby. We're done. There's no place to run. And when you do run, you're like standing still. It doesn't work. But when you combine those elements, when you put wind and fire together, you get the High Park or Waldo Canyon fire. When you put water and wind together, you get Hurricane Katrina. When you put earth and water together, you get an earthquake down in the base of the sea and it creates a Japanese tsunami. When the elements go crazy, it's not good. And especially for us, because we need points of stability. Human beings need to be able to stand someplace. We need to know where our security comes from. I'm seven years old in 1949. My parents were missionary educators in India and we're coming home from India on a 5,000 ton Danish freighter out of Colombo, what is now Sri Lanka. And monsoons come, not this little thing they call monsoon here with the light rain and the lightning. I mean, like typhoon-type monsoons come in that part of the world, and they'll come and stay for six weeks, go up north, come back down for another four. And so the captain of the Danish freighter decided to, or they, the company, decided to leave 
two weeks early to beat the monsoons. And it's a little 5,000-ton Danish freighter called the Johannes Maersk. Some of you have seen the Maersk containers, M-A-E-R. That was the line. But a 5,000-ton freighter is not very big. And we get two days out in the Indian Ocean, and the monsoon decides to come two weeks early. And for the next three days, it's 40-foot waves. And I'm like seven years old, and that sucker goes up and slides off sideways into those troughs, or goes prow down, and the whole ocean comes over and hits the front of that bulkhead and shakes everything. And I'm seven years old, and if I'd known the song, I would have sung Nearer My God to Thee, because I mean, I, th I thought it was over. We're never going to make it to Boston. We're done. When everything is unstable, I'm not designed for that. So here are these guys. They're on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus has sent them. Here's a picture of the Sea of Galilee. They're up in the northeast corner and they're going across to the um, west side of the lake. Sea of Galilee is 13 miles long and seven and a half miles wide at its widest point. Now, Horsetooth Reservoir, just as a point of reference, is six and a half miles long. So it's about as long as the Sea of Galilee is wide. But it's a relatively large body of fresh water. It's 700 feet below sea level, it's hot, it's arid, storms come up pretty quickly, 160 feet deep probably at its deepest point. And the winds come from east or west and can really rile the water up. In a drought in 1986, the water receded from the edges of the Sea of Galilee and they found a boat embedded in the mud and they were able to restore it and get it out and they radiocarbon dated it to the first century. They call it the Jesus boat. And it's the kind of boat these guys would have been in. It's 27 feet long and 7 feet wide. It could hold 15 people and 4 rowers. Now, not all these disciples are fishermen. They're not all rowers. One guy's a tax collector. He just moves. He just does this. He doesn't do this, you know. And here they are. They've been rowing for hours, apparently, making no headway. And uh, what did they see or hear? I mean, by this time, they're soaked. They had to be soaked to the skin. They had to be tired. The lactic acid had to be built up and they're sort of they're roaring like crazy. Maybe they're shouting each other in the storm and said, I thought he told us to do this. Why would he let this happen? I mean, he can do stuff like the fish and the look. Why is this, you know, I, maybe they didn't, but that's what I would have been doing. I'd have been whining. Okay? None of you are whiners, but, you know. And all of a sudden, in the midst of that, they see a vague form. They see him just for a moment because it isn't like those pictures you see of Jesus walking on the water where it's smooth and it's just lapping around his feet. No, no. You're up on this wave, then you're down in the trough, and then the boat's up, and he's down. And, and they just catch a glimpse, and they think it's a ghost, and they're terrified. They are scared to death. They're terrified. Ever been there? Ever been scared so bad you can hardly breathe? A few weeks ago, I stood with my grandson, 13 years old, and his dad on Utah Beach in Normandy. And when we went to the cemetery, the American cemetery over Omaha Beach, it's crosses and stars of David as far as you can see, 9,300 bodies of young men, essentially, in that cemetery. 150,000 young men landed on 50 miles of beach in one day. By the end of D-Day, June 6, 1944, 10,000 were dead on both sides. Dead, wounded, captured, or missing on both sides. 10,000. 20,000 altogether. And you see the crosses and the stars of David. And every once in a while on one of the crosses you will see, here lies, here rests in honored glory, a comrade in arms, known but to God. There wasn't enough of them to identify. They just put 
body parts. But when you hear the testimonies of the young men, 18, 19 years old, who got in those Higgin boats 12 miles out to come in, when you hear their testimonies, their, their accounts, over and over, you hear them say, I have never been so scared in my entire life as I was that morning, that day, coming in to Omaha Beach. To be terrified is a terrible feeling. But you see, fear is our default position as human beings. That's just where we go. Something happens, that's where we go. There are lots of fears. There are thousands of fears. You could Google it. You can see it. I mean, you can be afraid of small places. You can be afraid of peanut butter on the roof of your mouth. That's true. That's one of the fears. I need to be afraid of peanut butter on the roof of my mouth. <laughs> Babies have two fears, for starters. They have fear of loud noises, fear of falling. But the challenge of our age is an unspecified non-located anxiety, an unspecified anxiousness. We're afraid of what we don't know or understand. And oftentimes we're afraid of what we do know and understand. Why does everything like keep moving? It's just like being in strong winds on the Sea of Galilee. And what, what can comfort you in those situations? Well, apparently a voice. Apparently a voice can do that. There's something about hearing the voice of someone we love and know that's powerful. They've done studies and babies in the womb can identify their mother's voices. They'll hear other voices. When they hear their mother's voice, the heart rate slows down. Used to have a radio program in Champaign-Urbana, Illinois on the local CBS affiliate, WDWS. It was 10 minutes on a Saturday morning from 8.35 to 8.45 between Sports Scoreboard and Charles Osgood's Newsbreak. Charles and I are just like that. Wait, he's never met, but I really like Charles. And it was just a 10-minute program designed to bug pagans. We just, you know, just use secular music and say some stuff. And one day I was making a telephone call, and for some of you who are younger, you won't quite get this, but they used to have these people called operators. And when you called, they would place the long-distance call and wait while it rang. And so this lady was waiting while it rang, and she said, I like your radio program. I said, how do you know? I have a radio program. She said, you're Dick Foth, aren't you? I said, well, yeah, but how'd you know that? She said, I could tell by your voice. I have a friend who's a retired two-star general who when I asked him, what's your best takeaway from your years in the army personally? And instantly he said that my men knew my voice in the dark. We know Jesus' voice in the dark. My sheep know my voice, he says. But I don't think it's just a voice. I think it's a shout. I think they heard him shouting. That's, this is a faux theology right here. Or at least it's a thought. I think they heard him shouting. Because you see, well, just that afternoon, in evening, he'd been talking to this big crowd like there were five, 10, 15,000 people maybe in the area where he was teaching them before he sent them home. He didn't have this like PA system like I do. He, um, he had to be shouting. There was an evangelist in the 1700s by the name of George Whitfield who came from the United States and he was known for speaking to outside audiences to, in the fields and in the cities. Some people said he could be heard for miles. Ben Franklin was a friend of his and Ben didn't believe what George believed, but one day he tested it. He was speaking, George was speaking on the steps of the Philadelphia courthouse and he, um, Ben decided to walk to his office down Market Street and he walked as far as he could before George's voice became indistinct 
And he calculated that if you did two square feet per person, that within the range of George's voice, 30,000 people could have heard George Whitfield. So I think Jesus, you know, he, he just wasn't walking by in the storm with the wind howling and saying, what's up? You know, and he wasn't doing that. I think this is what it sounded like when he taught the people. This is what it sounded like. Remember, your heavenly father provides. It's not about your outsides. It's about your insides. It's about your heart. Don't forget that. Now you need to go home, but don't forget. He has to shout it because the wind is so loud. And he shouts three affirmations. Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Interesting thing about this passage, that it is I part, that's a construction in the original language. Ego eimi is, is the language, and, and it's, it means I am. It's the phrase that is used when he says, I am the good shepherd. I am the door. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the beginning and the end. That's what he's saying there. I think he's saying, take courage. I am. Don't be afraid. The great stabilizer has shown up. I am is for you English majors. I am is the verb to be like it's the base verb. It's like the steady verb. That's who he is. I mean, clearly it's, it's like Moses back in the Old Testament when the voice in the bush said, you tell him I am that I am. You know, I say, what kind of a name is that? Well, clearly it's not a Western God. That would be I do that I do. This is I am that I am. This is like the most stable person in the universe. And he comes in the storm and he says, take courage. I am. Don't be afraid. I have a friend who's with the Lord now, a Jewish guy raised in Brooklyn. He said, I grew up with my mother saying, Art, get a good job, marry a nice Jewish girl. Art, get a good job, marry a nice Jewish girl. He said, I heard that so much from my mother growing up, I thought it was one word. <laughs> I think the disciples heard one word. I think they heard, take courage, I am, don't be afraid. Take courage, I am, don't be afraid. Take courage, I am, don't be afraid. Say that with me. Take courage, I am, don't be afraid. I think that's what they heard. C.S. Lewis says it this way, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. He whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, and shouts to us in our pains. It is his megaphone for a deaf world. Point four. Awkward baby faith always trumps practiced fear. Awkward baby faith, just little tiny, like mustard faith, little tiny, always wins over practiced fear. I'm a great practitioner of fear. I'm a specialist in fear. You scare me, I go there like it's just reflex. That's who I am. That's our, that's our default. I already said that. Fear is where I go naturally. Faith is where Jesus calls me supernaturally. When I'm anxious, afraid, frightened, scared, terrified. When I'm at least, when I'm just a little scared, I'm disoriented. When I'm really scared, I'm paralyzed. And I get caught up in the elements and the, and the circumstances. And I need to hear the shout. Take courage, I am, don't be afraid. It's here that Matthew records that Peter 
says, if that's really you, call me. I want to get out of the boat. And he says, come on. And Peter gets out of the boat. I don't think he has to climb out. I think that sucker's on his side. He just walks straight out. <laughs> and he gets about four steps and down he goes and says, save me. And the Lord gets him, gets back in the boat. Years or months later, whenever the day of Pentecost was, you know, Jesus leaves and he says, go and stay for 10 days together. What do you do for 10 days waiting for the promise of the Father, whatever that was? They're hanging out for 10 days. What do you do? I think you reminisce. I think you say, you know, remember when he said, just stretch out your hand and that withered hand guy stretched his head or that girl was raised? You remember that? And somebody says, Peter, I'll never forget. In that, you stepped out of the boat. You went down like a rock. Yeah, you went down. And old Peter, you know, Peter's not pure yet. He says, I didn't see anybody else getting out of the boat. You know, he just, and again, that's the fourth imagination. You won't find that anywhere in the scripture. But, but they get in the boat and it says the wind stopped. It said, literally, it says Jesus struck it. It's like he gets in the boat, looks at the wind, says, oh, stop it. Two things happened. They were amazed, John says, and worshiped him. And the second thing was that they were still trying to figure out the loaves and the fish, and their hearts were calloused. And I'm thinking, how do you, how do you be amazed and worship, worship him and still like have calluses on your heart? How does that work? Well, apparently it does. Apparently, we're like a work in progress. Like we got both things at work sometimes. And I can be very sensitive here and not so sensitive there. They just didn't get it. Just because we follow doesn't mean we get everything or understand everything. And just because we follow him doesn't mean on occasion we don't get scared. What it does mean is that Jesus shouts above our storms and Jesus climbs into our frail circumstances and helps us. Seven years ago, I'm sitting in a hotel lobby in Salt Lake City, traveling with a government official, and my cell phone rings. It's my doctor in Falls Church, Virginia. It's actually the nurse, and she says, uh, Dr. So-and-so wants you in his office tomorrow morning first thing. I'd had some tests, and I said, I can't get there. I, I can't get back for several days because I'm traveling. I said, did the test come back? She said, yes. I said, I need to know the results. She said, I can't tell you. I said, I need to know whether you found cancer or not. I'll find out the, the rest of it from the doctor. And she said, yes, it came back positive. He'll tell you the particulars when you get here. It took me four days to get home. And for four days, I went from anxiousness to terrified. I stand before you cancer-free today, but I'm here to tell you, those of you who have gone through things and are going through things, it's easy to go from nervous, anxious, to terrified like that. You get the right set of circumstances. And I'm thinking, I've known Jesus since I was seven. I gave as much as I knew of me when I was seven to as much as I knew of him. So I shouldn't, like, be scared. I'm supposed to be mature. Well, scared is a feeling. It's not like the truth. But it's the truth about how I feel. And uh, I went back and looked at scriptures, and you have guys like Joshua, who's he's a studly guy from the Old Testament. He's not as scared of giants or anything. And in, in the first chapter of Joshua, over and over, God is saying, take heart, be of good courage. Don't be scared. Don't be terrified. He has to say it like five, six times. And then Elijah who does all these great things on Mount Carmel. He, like, he's the big prophet in the Old Testament. He's the prototype. I mean, he calls down fire from heaven. He takes out 450 guys who were pagan 
priests. He, he prays for rain after three and a half years, and it comes, and he outruns a chariot. 17 miles, it's like three quarters of a marathon. He outruns it. I mean, the guy's, he's got it. And then the wicked queen, Jezebel, sends him an email, my, my take on it, saying, by this time tomorrow night, you are dead meat. And it says that Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. And I'm saying, what's that about? And the Lord says, it's about warfare. It might be spiritual warfare, but it's still warfare, and you get tired. And when you get tired, your defenses go down. And when your defenses go down, it's easy to go to the place of fear. So my question is, here's the shout of Jesus. Take courage, I am, don't be afraid. My question is, where's my storm today? Where am I afraid? In the middle of it, here comes Jesus. Would you bow your heads and your hearts with me just for a moment? I just want to ask you, I want to ask two questions, and we do this a lot here, and I love it that we do it a lot. My first question is this. You're here this morning. You could have been a believer for a long time. But on the fear scale, if 10 is terrified and one is just sort of nervous, you say this morning, I'm in a place where I'm five or above, and I'd, I'd just like you to include me in your prayer as you close. You just slip your hand up and let me include you. Yes, 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 lots of us. I see your hand, yes, yes. Father, you know these hearts. You know the fear that touches and sometimes paralyzes, but I pray that by your spirit, you will do a miracle in this room. That even as they walk from this room, they will feel the load of fear, the the vice clamp around the throat, go away. For the one who lives with anxiousness and this vague uncertainty, I pray for him or for her that they will know your peace in an ongoing way day to day. Thank you, Lord, that you shout, and I believe you call us by name. Both here I come, ready or not, take courage, I am, don't be afraid. So thank you for these dear friends who have been honest about what they feel and sense this morning. And may your truth overwhelm them in these moments. Thank you, Lord. There may be some here this morning who say, you know, I don't, I don't know the first thing about Jesus except what I just heard. And I heard some stuff when I was a kid. But what I do know is that I need his help. I need someone to scrub my history and give me a future. I need to know that I'm forgiven for my past and I have... I have a place to go. Scripture says that he'll make us new creations from the inside out if we follow him. There may be some here this morning like there were in the last service and last evening who just slip up a hand and say, would you include me in your prayer for those who just want to get started? And you'll slip your hand up. Just put your hand up wherever you are. Just put it high. Yes, I see. Put it down. Yes, I see. You Put it down. Anyone else waiting just a moment? Slip it way up high and just put it right back down. Thank you, Lord, for these dear friends who have raised a hand, acknowledging that they need you and want to start. So many of us have been there, and we are so grateful for not only the start, but the journey. Even as I pray, Lord, forgive me my sin. Make me a new person. 
give me a fresh tomorrow. Make me a new creation. Let them pray that in their own hearts. We give you praise for it. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. He shouts to us and we shout back. Our prayer team is coming this morning. Even as I speak, we're going to be down here following the conclusion of our time in just a moment. If you have a particular need and you just like someone to pray with you confidentially, just to be here. I can't tell you how many times when I've been sitting there and somebody has made that kind of invitation, I wandered up and said, you know, I got this thing and I just need, or, you know, we need something here or we're praying about this. And just to have a minute with folks like this is tremendous. If you raised your hand and said, you know, I'd like to get started. We'd like to give you something for the journey. It's a little packet that talks about who God is and how you can follow him. You can get these in the stairwells on either side of the platform or at guest services. So I'm there on the pier at Cape Hatteras and this guy, Charles, comes down and he says, hi, how you doing? And I said, I'm good. He said, what's your name? He said, I'm Dick. He said, I'm Charles. He said, what are you doing here? He said, I'm on vacation. Want to go fishing with me? Yeah. He said, what do you do? Where are you from? I said, I'm from Illinois. I said, what do you do? I said, I'm a pastor. I said, you don't say I ain't no preacher, but I've been saved 15 years, proud of it. <laughs> I said, how did that happen? He said, oh, I, I just fish all week. I was a young man, I fish all week. Come in, just get drunk, do what young men do. One worth nothing, really. Just go out, catch fish, come in, have party, do whatever. I said, in one night, my cousin invited me to a church and a feller there said that if I trusted Jesus, he changed my whole life. And that night I was just tired of what I was living and what I was doing. And I just said, Jesus, I'm gonna give you a try. I'm gonna give you a good, decent try. I asked Charles how old he was this week. He said, I'm 84. That good, decent try turned out real well. Charles Daniels and it'll turn out real well for you and now and to him who is able to keep us from falling we pray that his grace will go with you as you go this week wherever you are please understand that you are not an accident and wherever you are Jesus is with you may his presence and his power be yours every day go in his grace the service begins now god bless you